0: To To Every Generation, the broadcast ministry of Calvary Chapel Crossfields, located in Jamesburg, New Jersey, where we teach through the entire Bible, verse by verse, and make application to every generation, so we can grow in our relationship with God.
1: This morning, we're going to be in Ezekiel 21 and 22. So the last time the message was titled a divine intervention. We talked about even interventions today. Some of them are televised, but this was even more serious because God's people were all going in the wrong direction. And this was prior to the 586 Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem. So God is really doing everything to try to get their attention because he loves them. He knows that they're on the wrong path. Um, We even talked about today in our lives personally, um, I know I was on the wrong path in my teens and my twenties, and uh, you know God got my attention. I eventually came to the Lord. Uh, today, the message is titled, and, and if you didn't get it, check it out, because we actually talked a little bit about end times prophecy, where we're going in Ezekiel 38 and 39, what's going on in the world in the Middle East, and how the Bible predicted all these things. So that's very powerful. Uh, today, the message is titled, Judgment Cries Out for a Mediator. So I sort of made an anthropomorphic title, right? You you attribute human qualities to things that aren't human. So judgment is crying out for a mediator. You know, when we teach judgment for sins, we have to do it in context. But the really interesting thing as we go through these chapters, especially the last five or six minutes, it all gets wrapped up together. You know, uh, judgment without a mediator Right. Without a remedy for sin keeps the human race hopeless, no chance of seeing God. But we're going to talk about how even towards the end of this, how God is looking for somebody to stand in the gap and how Jesus fulfilled that in the first century. You know, and and Christians do this sometimes. You know, they they they're asked the question, well, why do I need Jesus? Well, because he died for your sins. Well, and, and I've heard this, well, well, why did he die for your sins? Well, because sin gets judged and sin keeps us from God. Well, why does, you know, and you go through this kind of back and forth, but I think as we get to the end today, you're really going to get a good grasp of what it all means and why Jesus had to come to die for our sins. So we're going to look at this in four parts. We're going to jump in, in chapter 21, it says, and the word of the Lord came to me. Now this is Ezekiel saying Son of man, set your face against Jerusalem, preach against the holy places, and prophesy against the land of Israel. So this is the Hebrew prophet to his own people, right? And say to the land of Israel, thus says the Lord, behold, I'm against you. Right? This was positional in time. And I will draw my sword out of its sheath and cut off both righteous and wicked from you, because I will cut off both righteous and wicked from you. Therefore, my sword shall go out of its sheath against all flesh, from south to north another anthropomorphism where a human quality is attributed to something that's non-human right that all flesh may know that i the lord have drawn my sword out of its sheath it shall return no more so that was the one illustration too he says in verse six sigh therefore son of man with a breaking heart and a sigh with bitterness before their eyes and it shall be when they say to you why are you sighing that you shall answer because of the news when it comes. Every heart will melt. All hands will be feeble. Every spirit will faint and all knees will be weak as water. Behold, it is coming and shall be brought to pass, says the Lord God. We're going to look at number three in verse eight. Again, the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord, say, a sword, a sword is sharpened and it's also polished, sharpened to make a dreadful slaughter, polished to flash like lightning. Should we then make mirth? Should we make light of it? Should we, is this a time for singing and dancing? The answer is no. It despises the scepter of my son as it does all wood, And he has given it to be polished that it may be handled. This sword is sharpened and it is polished to be given into the hand of the slayer. Cry and wail, son of man, for it will be against my people, against the princes of Israel. Terrors, including the sword, will be against my people. Therefore, strike your thigh because it is a testing. And what if the sword despises even the scepter? The scepter shall be no more. Thus says the Lord God. Four, verse 14. You therefore, son of man, prophesy... You see all the different ways he's trying to get the attention of his people? So this is pre 586 BC. He doesn't want them to suffer this fate, but they're not listening. So he, so he has his prophet do all these different, you know, acting out, um, you know, metaphors, allegories, anthropomorphisms, right? All these different ways to try to get their attention. You, therefore, son of man, prophesy and strike your hands together... The third time, let the sword do double damage. It is the sword that slays, the sword that slays the great men, that enters their private chambers. I have set the point of the sword against all their gates, that, they, that the heart may melt and many may stumble. Ah, it is made bright. It is grasped for slaughter. Swords at the ready. Thrust right. Set your blade thrust left wherever your edge is ordered. I also will beat my fist together and I will cause my fury to rest. I, the Lord, have spoken. All right. So <laughs> the first part out of four is the sign of the drawn sword. Again, many different ways. And sort of like an intervention today, if you know a family member or a loved one that's going in the wrong direction, don't you try. You ever, you've, I'm sure you've all done this at some point. You sit down with them and you try to talk. You reason with them. And they're not buying it. Then you say, you know, I was going on the wrong path. Then you use yourself as a testimony. And they're still not buying it. Then you say, well, if you keep going, this is what could happen. You try many different things to get someone you love from going off the cliff. Bridges out, you know, warning. Train tracks are busted. Stop. So that's what God is doing. Um, there's a lot of repetition in these chapters, so I'm not going to go through, you know, we've done a lot of this previously, but I just want to kind of grasp the salient points here. Verses one through five. It isn't as God, is, it's not God saying, and this is what people do when they criticize the Bible. They read that and go, oh, what does God have a sheath and a big sword and he slays people? No, you have to read it in context. It's anthropomorphic. It's you know, God is, is spirit, right? For us to understand God, God has to use uh, uh, illustrations to understand him better. Uh, so he, God doesn't carry a sword around on his hip. He doesn't even have a hip. <laughs> so, but it, this is, this is what he's, he's trying to show them. Uh, also verse four, which I'm going to come back to. Sadly, some of the good people in Jerusalem suffered for some of the actions of the wicked. We'll come back to that because that's an important uh, discussion. Verses six through seven, God tells Ezekiel to act out the tragedy before it happens. He says, sigh, sigh, right? Ezekiel must have been a very dynamic prophet because he would act out these things that God asked him to. And then, you know, the people would gather around and saying, why are you acting like that, Ezekiel? And he would say, well, if we keep going in this direction, this is what everyone's going to be doing. I'm just kind of showing you what's to come verses 10 and 13 he said that the sword despises the scepter and the scepter is no more the scepter was always a picture of the jewish people before these foreign nations came in to be able to govern themselves the kingship the autonomous rulership so the sword of the babylonians was going to come in and completely uh throw that into into disarray and the babylonians were going to decide who was going to run the place at that point because they would be a vassal of the babylonian empire Verses 14 through 17, the sword, the sword, the sword. It must be said 20 or so t- times in here. And basically, when the Babylonians broke in, that's all they were going to see were swords. So this is a prophecy. And then the striking of the thigh and the clapping of the hands together was part of him acting out what was going to happen. Okay, let's go to the... <laughs> this, this, this stuff this is a heavy book, right? So let's just go to the applications. Going back to verse 4. Unfortunately... Um, because of evil people, some of the righteous or some of the innocent in Jerusalem suffered as a result of it. God did a really good job in protecting a lot of the righteous and continued to use them for his glory to lead the people. But as you can imagine, if you study any warfare, when a foreign army comes in, if they're enraged enough, they're not very nice to the people that they invade. So this is all history. You can look it up in your history books. Um, And and I try to explain this to people, is that, and and you have to be very sensitive sometimes, especially at at a funeral, you know, to express that the utopia that we look for as human beings is never going to be here. If we look, even as Christians, if we look for this place to be our permanent home, first of all, we don't live that long, right, (laughs) right? You know, we maybe actually two people come in one said they were 91. One person said they were 92. Wow, that is awesome That is awesome, right? That is incredible But if you look at the grand scheme of history, we don't live that long so to, When you understand the things of God, we try to explain to people that yes, we live our lives here We enjoy our lives. We enjoy people But where we're going to spend the majority of our time is in eternity and that's really where the major preparations need to go for and towards. So, sadly enough, in this world, whether it was 6th century B.C., uh, Jerusalem, or the United States today, wicked people, especially those in power, cause others to suffer. And that's, unfortunately, the reality of our current existence. Thankfully, that's not always going to be the case. Lord's kingdom is coming. Um, now, here's an important caveat before we move on to the next section, is that in judgment, right, in judgment, the righteous and the wicked do not suffer together. So, in other words, when we die, you're in Christ. Christ has paid the penalty for your sins. You see what I'm saying? Jesus says that in the end, and again, this is a, a, it's a metaphor, it's not real animals. He would say the sheep and the goats would be separated he would say uh, those who are on the narrow path would make it, and those who are on the wide path would not. He spoke about even in the church, the wheat, the good, and the tares, the evil. So in this dispensation, in this world, there's going to be always a mixture of righteous and wicked. There is no utopia here. But in God's kingdom, there will be. And the righteous will be preserved. So good good things to look forward to. Verse 18, he continues... He says, The word of the Lord came to me again, saying, And son of man. So, this is the fifth thing that we see that God asked Ezekiel to do in this chapter. He says, Son of man, appoint for yourself two ways for the sword of the king of Babylon to go. Both of them shall go from the same land. Make a sign, put it at the head of the road to the city. Appoint a road for the sword to go to Rabbah of the Ammonites, which is today, modern day Jordan area. Right? Rabah of the Ammonites, and to Judah into fortified Jerusalem. For the king of Babylon stands at the parting of the road, at the fork of the two roads, to use divination. This was a pagan practice. He shakes the arrows, he incul- uh, consults the images, he looks at the liver. In his right hand is the divination for Jerusalem to set up battering rams to call for a slaughter, to lift the voice with shouting, to set battering rams against the gates, to heap up a siege mound, and to build a wall. And it will be to them like a false divination in the eyes of those who have sworn oaths with them. But he will bring their iniquity to remembrance that they may be taken. The sixth thing he shows them to do. Okay? Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you've made your iniquity to be remembered and that your transgressions are uncovered so that in all your doings your sins appear because you have come to remembrance, you shall be taken in hand. Now to you, O profane, wicked princes of Israel, whose day has come, whose iniquity shall end. Thus says the Lord God, remove the turban. So this was the king of Israel, and the turban and the headgear was a sign of royalty. Take off the crown. Nothing shall remain the same. Exalt the lowly and abase the exalted. Overthrown, overthrown. I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he comes, whose right it is, and I will give it to him. Seventh thing he shows him. And that ends this part of the chapter. And you, son of man, prophesy and say, thus says the Lord God concerning the Ammonites and concerning their reproach. And say, a sword, a sword is drawn, polished for slaughter, for consuming, for flashing, while they see vain visions for you, while they divine a lie to you to bring you on the necks of the wicked, the slain whose day has come. Whose iniquity shall end. Return it to its sheath. I will judge you in the place where you were created in the land of your nativity. I will pour out my indignation on you. I will blow against you with the fire of my wrath and deliver you into the hands of brutal men who are skillful to destroy. You shall be fuel for the fire. Your blood shall be in the midst of the land. You shall not be remembered for I the Lord have spoken. Okay, two. So this is the second part out of the four parts. The seven things that I went through were the different ways that he, God had Ezekiel try to warn his people. But this is the second part out of four in today's message. The sign of the double stroke of the sword. Now, this is another fact, and you can find this in the history books. King Nebuchadnezzar, he comes southwest from Babylon. Um, He had a... A headquarters in, in Syria. He had taken most of that area in the Middle East. There was a few, what he felt, rebellious holdouts. He had to go south. And as he gets close to the Holy Land, he's like, hmm, should I go invade the Ammonites in Jordan, which we know is Jordan, or should I invade Jerusalem? And just like today, pagan people do weird stuff, right? He was shaking his arrows. And if you ever look at people who practice paganism, they use earthly things to try to contact the spiritual realm. Sadly enough, they would slaughter an animal and remove their liver and then look at the liver and how the liver looks. That would It's just weird. It's weird. But this is what paganism does. You know, you don't know the personal God, so you look for things of the earth to find spiritual truth. So what God was doing is he was showing Ezekiel that this is a crossroads that the the pagan king uh, Nebuchadnezzar is on. He's doing all these things to decide, do I go to Jerusalem or do I go to uh, Ammon? So what God is doing is he overrules their superstitious practices and he, he moves Nebuchadnezzar to go to Jerusalem first. Proverbs twenty-one, one, you know how the the Lord had, can change the direction of the heart of the king. All right. Well, now the Ammonites rejoiced at the downfall of Jerusalem, so they were next. They thought they kind of got away with it, but Nebuchadnezzar and the you know successive people moved that way as well. What's the lesson? In all this. Proverbs twenty-four, seventeen. It says, don't rejoice when your enemy falls. Don't let your heart be glad when he stumbles. So these are all things that um, we can read from different cultures, different time periods, and then pull things out of it that we can apply to our lives. The Ammonites were dancing. They were gleeful that uh, Babylon was going into Jerusalem. Ah, Finally, we, our enemies are being defeated by Nebuchadnezzar. But they didn't realize that they were next on the chopping block. Uh, Jesus even tells us to pray for our enemies. Now, that's not an easy thing to do, depending on how much someone might have hurt you. I got to be honest with you. I mean, I don't I don't think I have any enemies. I might be wrong, (laughs) but, you know, it's like whatever I got ripped off, whatever. You know, somebody slandered me. Okay, just pray for those people. You know what I say? We should just do it because the Lord tells us to do it. But logically, I try to tell people. Well, if your enemy, you pray for your enemy and your enemy gets saved, then your enemy actually becomes a brother or a sister and they're not against you anymore. So I try to find ways to help people. You know, you should obey what God says anyway, but this is sort of the silver lining in all this, right? James 2.13 says, there will be no mercy to those that don't show mercy. That's very, very important, especially when you're in a position of power whether it's law enforcement or a judge or a politician, you know, you want to be merciful to those people that you have authority over. You know, I certainly don't want to get to heaven and God says to me, you didn't show mercy. And, you know, you're, you're gonna, there's going to be consequences for that. So no matter what we do, we, we should always show mercy. Do we have to be stern at times? Do we have to be uh, disciplined? Do we have to do our job at times? Yeah, of course. But we can also show mercy while doing that. These are a lot of great um, themes in the scripture. Had the Ammonites not completely rejoiced and their visceral hatred for Jerusalem, I don't know. Maybe the outcome might have been different, right? They tried to sabotage them. Maybe they sent a letter to Nebuchadnezzar and say, yeah, these people are really thumbing their nose that you get them. I don't know what they did, but apparently it was pretty bad. Chapter 22. Verse 1, it says, and these two go together, so it's important that I, I include this. Moreover, the word of the Lord came to me saying, now, son of man, now this is a sort of a historical outlook to explain what was going on in chapter 21. Now, son of man, will you judge, will you judge the bloody city? A lot of bad things were happening in Jerusalem. Jerusalem. Yes, show her all her abominations. Then say, thus says the Lord God, the city sheds blood in her own midst, that her time may come, and she makes idols within herself to defile herself. You have become guilty by the blood which you have shed and have defiled yourselves with the idols which you have made you have caused your days to draw near and i have and have come to the end of your years therefore i have made you a reproach to the nations and a mockery to all countries those near and those far from you will mock you as infamous and full of tumult look the princes of israel each one has used his power to shed blood in you now you're going to see that as the sadly enough as the inhabitants of jerusalem moved further away from god they didn't feel any you know, responsibility towards a higher power. I don't like to use that word a lot, but they didn't, that phrase, they didn't see their responsibility towards God to be merciful, to be honest, to be fair. So the, the people who are in control cause all kinds of havoc with those who are under him. So he kind of goes through some of this. He says, in you, they have made light of father and mother. In your midst, they have oppressed the stranger. In you, they have mistreated the fatherless and the widow. You have despised my holy things and profaned my Sabbaths. And you are men who slander to cause bloodshed. And you are those who eat on the mountains. In your midst, they commit lewdness. In you, men uncover their father's nakedness. In you, they violate women who are set apart during their impurity. One commits abomination with his neighbor's wife. Another lewdly defiles his daughter-in-law. And another in you violates his sister, his father's daughter. In you, they take bribes to shed blood. In you, they take, you take usury and increase, right? Interest. So you loan somebody something and you sort of like credit card, uh, you know, interest rates and some of these predatory loans. God said, I forbid that. Our culture should listen to that. <laughs> you have made profit from your neighbors by extortion and have forgotten me, says the Lord God. Behold, therefore, I beat my fist at the dishonest prophets which you have made and at the bloodshed which has been in your midst. Can your heart endure or can your hands remain strong in the days when I shall deal with you? I, the Lord, have spoken and will do it. I will scatter you among the nations, disperse you throughout the countries, and remove your filthiness completely from you. I'm going to start all over with this culture. You shall defile yourself in the sight of the nations. You shall know that I am the Lord. The word of the Lord came to me, saying... Son of man, the house of Israel has become dross to me, or slag. I'll get to that. They're all bronze, tin, iron, and lead in the midst of a furnace. They have become dross from silver. Therefore, says the Lord God, because you have all become dross, therefore, behold, I will gather you into the midst of Jerusalem. As men gather silver, bronze, iron, lead, and tin into the midst of a furnace furnace to blow fire on it, to melt it. So I will gather you in my anger and in my fury, and I will leave you there and melt you. Yes, I will gather you and blow on you with the fire of my wrath, and you shall be melted in its midst. As silver is melted in the midst of a furnace, so you shall be melted in its midst. Then you shall know that I, the Lord, have poured out my fury on you. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, say to her, You are a land that is not cleansed or rained on in the day of indignation. The conspiracy of her prophets in her midst is like a roaring lion tearing the prey. The prophets were supposed to speak for God and direct the people spiritually, But these guys were now doing things for money. They were doing things for political favor. Man, as I go through this and I explain this, I think of where our country's going. Like, every institution has almost become completely corrupted for money and for power and for a lot of things. Um, They have devoured people. They have taken treasure and precious things. They have made many widows in her midst. Her priests... Have violated my law and profaned my holy things. They have not distinguished between holy and unholy, nor have they made known the difference between unclean and clean. They have hidden their eyes from my Sabbaths so that I am profaned among them. Her princes in the midst are like wolves tearing the prey to shed blood. Again, this was metaphoric of how they treated the people under them to destroy people and to get this honest gain. You know, when is enough money enough money? You know what I'm saying? You ever, you read about powerful people in this world, in this country, and it's like they always want more. You know, what's really sad. If you have the Lord, you have something that's priceless. You have something that they can't attain with their billions and billions of dollars. And listen, I have no problem with wealthy people. God bless them. You know, they're entrepreneurs. They made it. They came up with some idea. That's not the issue. The issue is where their heart is. And they think that you know, I have to laugh because I think the two richest people in the world and there's old money and new money, you know, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and 200 billion plus And, you know, one one gets another 10 billion. And it's like this sort of weird competition. What do you do with all that money? You know, if they stopped completely making money, they couldn't spend it all in the rest of the years that they have. So it's sad. And, and people think today, oh, I, I wish I had a piece of that. Or you realize that, oh, do I really want to go down this road? You know, if you do a study on people who have won the lottery, some of them have done well. But a lot of them, their lives have been ruined. Right? They immediately need, need security for their children. Because now predators know they have money now. So now they got to get alarm systems. They got to get security for their kids. God forbid they get you know kidnapped for ransom. Um, marriages have been ruined. Uh, families have gone in on the ticket, and then the one who turned it in all of a sudden doesn't want to share it with the other ones. You had nothing. Now you got millions of dollars. Why are you being so greedy? So, folks, does humanity ever change? This book was written almost three thousand years ago. And the powerful would just keep getting more powerful, and you would keep getting more money, and they would just taking it out on whatever was left of the middle class and the poor. So, this is, it's a heavy portion of scripture, but you definitely can make some comparisons today. I actually feel sad for those today that are that wealthy and still unhappy. Because all the money in the world, they change marriage partners, um, they change friends, and they, they're still not happy. I'll just, I'll just stay where I am. Thank you very much. You know what I'm saying? So we'll, we'll keep going. Her prophets plastered them with untempered mortar. We've seen this before. Seeing false visions and divining lies for them. Saying, thus says the Lord God, when the Lord had not spoken. Okay. It gets better from here. So um, three out of four this morning is the message of judgment in Jerusalem. Now, Verses 1 through 12 was your garden variety idolatry. Uh, The leaders were shedding innocent blood. The culture was now disrespecting parents. You know, there's sort of this invisible bonding agent in any culture, including our culture. And when people start to break against it, and there's simple things. Respect for your elders, older people, respect them. You don't realize that when a culture starts to disrespect older people that there's something that happens that's not seen, but it, it has an effect on the entire culture just to, to kick against that, to kick against any type of authority, just to keep. And then the authority becomes corrupt. So people are like, I don't even know which way to go. Do I, am I loyal to this? But then this is corrupt, you know, so the, the, the people live in, in confusion and this is what was going on. So, you know what it turned into every man for himself, Every man for himself, every woman for herself. They oppressed strangers, right? They mistreated the fatherless and the widow. Those were the ones that God said, I really want you to protect them. They're vulnerable, right? Children who are orphans, they didn't care because they they couldn't get anything from these kids, right? Um, They despised the things of God. They violated the Sabbaths. Uh, They slandered to cause bloodshed. There was an interesting story in the Old Testament where... King Ahab was married to the wicked Queen Jezebel. And uh, this guy, Naboth, he was an average guy. He had a vineyard. And the king really wanted that vineyard. And Naboth wouldn't sell it to him. So he was depressed. He's a big man-baby king, like when you read about him. So, of course, his wife comes by and says, we can get that vineyard. Well, how, honey? Well, we'll just, I'll pay off some uh, false witnesses. They'll take him to court. It's a capital punishment case. And they'll, they'll kill him, and you can have the vineyard. Oh, honey, that's a great idea. Well, that's literally what happened. Naboth was gone. They set up all these false witnesses. It was a kangaroo court. And uh, Ahab and Jezebel, they didn't have enough, right? Now they got Naboth's vineyard as well. Just to say this, you know, when we... I look at cultural issues. You know that decades ago... The court systems and the media would always try to look at the little guy, how he might have been getting uh, mistreated by the powerful, and they would report on that. They would expose that. The media would follow the money during the Nixon administration. You don't see a lot of that happening anymore. When you turn on the TV, they seem to now be agreeing with everything the powerful say. That's very concerning. Books have been written on this, and the court systems... Right. There's some from many different plaintiffs. There's some. uh, And, and, you know, I always say people say, oh, this is terrible. I'm like, just wait. It's got to work its way through the courts. Right. It starts with the local courts and then it goes through the, the circuit courts and then it can go to the Supreme Court. So I say, just be patient. You know, this is going on or this administration said this or this governor did this. Let it work its way through the courts. The courts were also supposed to be the arbiters of justice. They were supposed to sit there and weigh the evidence and look at the Constitution and decide if someone is getting a raw deal, that they would rule in their favor if it was constitutional. There is a lot of lawsuits, and I follow the courts. I follow the Supreme Court. There's a lot of lawsuits working their way through the courts that have to do with big tech and very powerful corporations that are abusing people financially, shutting them out when they don't like what they say. Um, And let's, let's take a look at that. Check, check out some of these court cases and see what happens. Are these judges, and there's good and bad, just like in everything in the world, some of these judges, are they bought and paid for? Or are they still going to rule for righteousness and be fine with what they're getting and not looking for some big gig when they retire and leave the bench? Let's see. Let's see what they say. Will they apply the Constitution fairly, or will they just rule in favor of the powerful? These are interesting concepts, aren't they? Right? This is, this is something we should be looking at in our culture. As we study the downfall of the southern kingdom of Judah and Israel, these started out as God's people. Look where they are now. The whole society is, is, is just a mess. You know? Where are we going in our culture? I don't know. Verses 10 through 11 multiple lewd sexual acts, some incestuous, some incestuous. Again, taking usury and, and, you know, uh, somebody's, they're they're destitute. You take advantage of somebody, you loan them the money, and they need the money so bad. Maybe it's medical equipment or something. Maybe it's food. But you're like, hey, I got them where I want them. So you start to charge these exorbitant um, interest. And this was something that God condemned, but this is what they were doing. Um, Taking property by just because they can, because they're powerful. How many people have heard the, uh, the phrase eminent domain? You know? So that's when uh, government, it happens today, government agencies say, well, we know that's your land, but we'll give you far, fair market value, right? Because we want your property, because we want to put in a, our friends and developers, we want to put in another complex, or we want to do this eminent domain. Um, that happens today in the United States. Uh, The courts do keep a lot of that in check, but some people don't get treated well and their property gets taken because a government entity says we need your property. So, you know, I'm not saying we're there, but these are some things to look at. Markers, indicators. Second Timothy, if I can turn to uh, supporting scripture, this speaks about the things that will happen in the last days, right? Chapter three. Paul says to Timothy, But know this, in the last days perilous times will come, for men will be lovers of themselves. Think about this. Men and women love themselves. Lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful. Some parents are going to get some mileage out of this today, I'm pretty sure. You know, you see that? You heard what he said? (laughs) Unthankful. Unholy, unloving, unforgiving. You ever see those videos of somebody who's sometimes in a city and and someone's suffering or they fell and they're just like laying in the street and a hundred people could walk by. Nobody thinks to help that person, you know, and I get it. There's scams and stuff and a lot of people just like they walk around with blinders. What's happening to our culture? Slanderers. Oh, I see that all over the, the Internet. Um, Unforgiving, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, (laughs) headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. Having a form of godliness, even, oh, I'm, I'm part of a denomination and I'm nice 40 minutes on Sunday and then I just do what I want the rest of the week. So having a form of godliness but denying its power and from such people turn away. Okay, for this sort of thing, this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins led away by various lusts. And these people would go through the town looking for targets and to find the, um, the vulnerable back then. And he's also speaking about the last days. Always learning and never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. I look at that in, um, even in, in religion and stuff, how... You know, persons there amassing all these degrees and clergy and they're just, if you go to council with them, they're just totally cold. They're just so about themselves and their degrees and how smart they are as theologians and going on TV and and all that kind of stuff. So continuing on verses 13 through 16, I'll go through these rather quickly. Uh, God said that he would scatter the Israelites among the heathen nations. Now again, people and God doesn't need me to defend them, but I often play the polemic here. Um, is God being mean? No, His people were acting like the for that, like those that didn't know God, right? So He was basically saying here, give over to them completely, right? First Corinthians five, um, there was a church that was so dysfunctional that the apostle Paul said, you know what, just they're just spreading all this bad stuff in the church. Just tell them to leave and let them just go and have their way in the world. Deliver them over to Satan. You know, um, are we people of God or do we want to walk on the wild side? Some professed believers like to walk on the wild side and I don't know what's cool about that. I don't know what's cool about God saving you and blessing you. And then you, you just keep thinking or acting as if God is not enough and just keep going to that side. So God told his people, just go there completely. Just live among them. You know, you you don't want me. And I'm I'm paraphrasing here. You know, my desire is to get as many people knowing the Lord as possible, even teaching a tough book like Ezekiel. (laughs) So uh, I recently did a funeral for a a young woman and it was very sad because she was young and she had cancer and uh, the family had invited me to get to know her really about a month and a half or so before she passed we don't know when someone's going to pass and i visited her a few times and uh, you know i really i really got myself to actually love her and care for her and her husband and her parents and you know i led them to the lord right i know where she is now and then when she passed this week i had a really busy schedule the parents said We can only think of you to do her eulogy. You've, you've got to do it. Uh, So like, I just, I just was, was full of joy and I couldn't contain my elation and joy to talk about this young lady and all the things she was and the icing on the cake is that she's with the Lord now. She's not suffering anymore. And the parents were just blown away. The husband, um, and it's not me. It's just the desire. If you desire and you love people, God will meet you there. Amen? So, I don't understand carnal Christianity. To me, I want everybody to go to heaven. And if I could be a facilitator, then I want to do that. Verses 17 through 22, the, the metaphor of the smelting pot. So, when he speaks about the tin, the lead, the silver, what God is saying here to the Israelite culture is, you know, if you've ever watched, even on TV, like this, the smelting process, the, um, you take metals, you put them in a cauldron, you heat it up real hot and it, it melts and it, it bubbles and on the dross and the, the slag come to garbage comes to the top and you scoop it, you, you get rid of it and you, and you let it cool and you keep doing this and eventually you have pure silver or pure gold. So what God was making a comparison with Jerusalem saying, you know, you've got really bad people that are ruining your culture, And I'm going to deal with that. And I'm going to keep going through this process. And you're going to feel the heat. But, but I'm going to purify this culture. And he did that over the years, right? Um, he went through a series of cycles of this. Verses 23 through 29, the worst of the worst. Leadership that, that's gone bad, secular and religious, right? Um, we find that the nation... Became so corrupt because they had turned their back on God. They had no moral compass anymore. And he speaks about the priests. Right? Clergy. He speaks about the courts. He speaks about the leaders. And I just can't help. but And and again, if if we lived in China or Russia or uh, Bangladesh or wherever. I would, uh, you know, as a pastor, it's your job to look at what's going on in the culture. And to make those comparisons. So I'm making the comparison with American culture. A lot of good people in America, a lot of good foundations, but there are some that are just trying to tear this country apart, cause a lot of division, right? Um, God is a God of justice and judgment and sin must be punished. And, you know, I'm sure with Noah, when he was building the ark, uh, he was probably ridiculed and mocked. I don't know how long it took him, him and his sons probably took a while. But you could just imagine them trying to win the people to saying, listen, this is what's coming. You got to turn to God. And, and they were mocked. How ridiculous. They never had floods. Mocking, mocking, mocking. It was a big joke until the rain started. Then it wasn't funny anymore. When you look at Sodom and Gomorrah, right? Same thing. Lot and his family. They even became, Lot and his family were actually the good people there. And if you read the Bible, they got corrupted by being in that city. So they were trying to talk to people, talk to people, and it was a big joke. They were mocked, they were abused, they were uh, marginalized, there's a word, until the fire started to rain down. Then it wasn't funny anymore, but it was too late. Folks, I got to say this, don't get caught up in what the world is doing. There are people who have left this church because they were um, mocked by their peers, Oh, that's a Bible believing church? Why don't you go to one of these church lights where all they talk about is happy things and they don't nobody knows the Bible and nobody knows what's going on in prophecy because we just talk about happy things from the pulpit. I do that too, but it's balanced. It's balanced. Right? So we we need to listen, I'm gonna say this too, and then I'm just gonna close with these last two verses. Is that I forgot my thought. It's been a rough week for me. Okay, I did share a little bit with you. My plate was so full, so I'm, I'm working on it here. Bear with me. Um, where was I going? I'll get it. It'll, at, at 53, it, it leaves, but then it comes back in, which is a really great thing. So I, I know what I want to say. You know, I, I look at, and, and we live in a culture that you can't buy into it. You turn on the TV. You look at the news, you look at these shows, It's constant. we're constantly being divided in this country. So race versus race, suburb versus city, just vaccinated versus unvaccinated. And we have irresponsible leaders that are perpetrating this, just to divide the populace, divide the populace. Here's another one that I've heard, and I hear people say it, maybe my age. Oh, those millennials, right? So now we're dividing the population because we hear it with the aged versus the young and the the insults that they hurl each other. This should not happen in a church. I will say this. When I look at the youth, I also look at my generation and say, where did we fail them? Where did we not teach them? Where were we lazy spiritually? So there might be a problem with some of the youth, but there's also a problem with people my age and older. And I don't like the division. And I got to tell you that I'm meeting a lot more late teens and 20-somethings in my evangelism as I go out and talk to strangers, because that's what I do, that are they're young and they're disgusted by what they're seeing in our culture. So guess what? We all agree with each other, right? The different races, the different languages, the different cultures, the different age groups. We agree with much more than divides us. And we have to look at that. We can't turn on the TV and let them divide us. Because I can tell you something in a church, we're supposed to be a monolith. We're supposed to be a melting pot of different, of, of diversity. But we come together with one goal: is to seek the things of God and help other people understand the things of God. Amen. So listen, this is this is this is a tough book to teach, but there's a lot of good. Um, illustrations in here that we can take hold of. Last two verses. It says, so I saw it. This is God speaking. I sought for a man among them who would make a wall and stand in the gap before me on behalf of the land that I should not destroy it, but I found no one. Therefore, I have poured out my indignation on them. I have consumed them with the fire of my wrath and I have recompensed their deeds on their own heads, says the Lord God. So four out of four for this morning is hoping to find a mediator. Now, I want to just go back to 21 and read one part of the verse, twenty-one, twenty-seven. It's subtle. He speaks about the overthrow of the, the last king of, of Jerusalem, Zedekiah. He takes the turban off. He takes the crown off, right? Babylonians come in. They de- he's no longer a king. He's deposed. Overthrown, overthrown. I will make it overthrown. It shall be no longer until he comes whose right it is and I will give it to him. Now there's another inference, there's another messianic scripture. That is a picture of Jesus as the final king of Jerusalem which is a future fulfillment when he returns. So we put all these these things together. Judgment cries out for a mediator. Why? If I could personify judgment, judgment is saying I have to do my job. I have to judge sin, sin is wicked, but I'm crying out for a mediator because humanity is lost. It's hopeless. We have no hope in this world. If there's not someone standing in the gap for us and bridging us between our sinful flesh and a holy and righteous God. This has Jesus Christ written all over it. Otherwise, there's a hopeless cycle of sin and judgment and nobody gets to heaven. But Jesus. Think about it. He took the judgment for our sin on the cross because he is that mediator. And he gives us the ability not to continue to live in a lifestyle of dysfunction and sin. It doesn't mean we don't sin. It just means we're different than before we knew God. Powerful stuff. Jeremiah 5, Isaiah 59, we see the same thing, the search for a mediator. And then people would ask, Pastor Joe, well, Ezekiel is his man. Of course, he's righteous. He's a good guy. Daniel, Jeremiah, these are all good, good people. Some of the women, great ladies. What's the problem? So here are some examples and, and kind of, you know, for those Bible teachers that kind of go through this stuff is some say, well, what, what God's trying to say is there's too few to affect the change. I could see that, but I'm not totally sold on that. Two, there were none in leadership to be able to turn things around to affect the change. Leadership had become all corrupt. That's a little stronger. But I think that what God was saying, and he does this a lot. Did you ever wonder why when Jesus walked the earth and he walked past the fishermen and he walked past Matthew, the, the trader, tax collector, that they all dropped what they were doing and followed him? When you read that in the gospel, you're like, you Christians, this is, a, this is contrived. This is a fairy tale. No, it wasn't. Because God, for hundreds of years, put his prophets in there to prepare the people for for the messiah so they saw the miracles they saw they heard the teachings and like this is definitely him we have a whole old testament that points to him before he even came god does the same thing here with the judgment with the i'm looking for somebody i'm looking for somebody to stand in the gap and i can't find anybody this was written a few hundred years before jesus came theme over and over and over again so when jesus comes they're like wow this is the solution, the Messiah who would die for their sins. Pretty amazing. What God does is he stirs up a hunger and a void in us, a void and emptiness. And then when Jesus came, he fills that void. So it, it worked. That's why when you read the Gospels, these guys were like, oh, huh, definitely following him. First Timothy two, five, it says, For there is one God. And one mediator between God and humankind, the man Christ Jesus. And he had the ability to pay the judgment price for our sin, to rescue us from sin, and to rescue us from estrangement from God. I'll leave you with this one verse it is John three, sixteen, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever anyone would believe in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Let's pray.